All right, what is up, team? Welcome back to the show. Today, I am joined once again by Brandon DeCruz to dig back into some nutrient timing and really finish up this series on nutrient timing. Brandon, thank you for being back, dude. Absolutely, man. I'm looking forward to uh, part two. Absolutely, man. I got a lot of good feedback, and I am excited to dig into the remainder of this. I know um, the last episode, we really dug into why nutrient timing is so important. Kind of giving the listeners an understanding of the peri-workout window as a whole and really dug deep into the pre-workout meal, how to go about setting that up, the benefits of that. Before we dig into the intra-workout period, was there anything else you wanted to touch on? Are you ready to just get right into it? Yeah, honestly, there is. Um, I got a lot of great feedback and I'm mm -hmm. super appreciative of it. And I also got some questions, which I embedded in here um, into um, what we'll talk about today. But I did want to uh, get back to, I had a couple um, listeners who asked about this podcast in particular, but also ones that I've done in the past. And they mm -hmm. kind of asked me why that I don't give specific amounts per meal. Like when I give recommendations for pre-workout. Okay. So I just wanted to address that because really what I try to do is I try not to give blanketed and general recommendations on what exact amounts someone should eat. So within this, the context of this um, podcast, I'm going to tell you, I'm not going to give you specific amounts as to what to eat pre intra or post-workout as there's so much unique context that needs to be taken into consideration and into account with every individual. Like as a coach, we need to consider someone's total caloric intake for the day, their preferences, their digestive capacity, their level of insulin sensitivity and nutrient partitioning, what phase of training they're currently in, what their schedule looks like, um, even like their current body composition in terms of how much muscle and body fat they have, as well as both their short and long-term goals Throughout the course of this podcast, I just want to give everyone like a heads up. I'm going to touch on the principles I use within the intra-workout and post-workout nutrient timing categories, but not exact amounts as my goal whenever I get on Jeremiah's podcast or honestly, any podcast or any informational um, content that I put out, it's to provide information and educational content that gets you guys to think more critically about what you're doing rather than just to give you specific amounts which not only wouldn't be useful, but it'll, it wouldn't be applicable as everyone is different. And even when I apply these strategies that I'm going to speak on today to my clients, I consider so many other variables and factors first and then create a plan that's specifically built for that individual. So just so people know, like sometimes they're looking for this end-all be-all answer. And there are people within the evidence-based scene or within the fitness scene that will give you these blanketed uh, answers. But remember, if you're looking for an answer, you're going to... And, and you're asking a general question, you're going to get a general answer. So it's not going to be applicable to you and your situation. So it really isn't useful. So it's the same thing as like when people reach out to someone like Jeremiah and I and say, how much should I eat? Or the question of how much do you eat? That doesn't help you guys. Like take principles and apply principles rather than looking for protocols. I love it, man. And with the, with the podcast or any content we create, I think that like is such an important understanding where very much we are speaking in generalities. Part of the reason we go into so much nuance and so much depth here is so you can actually understand how to take these things and apply them to yourselves. And as you said, like if it's just, hey, eat this amount of protein, this amount of carbs, this amount of fat, like we can't possibly just within that teach you how to actually understand like how to apply these concepts based on like what phase of nutrition you're in, like what your current body composition goals are, et cetera. There's so many nuances there. So very much like we want you to take the principles away from this and apply it. Um, anything else you wanted to add there? No, no. I just wanted to cover that because I do understand. I, I get a lot of feedback and people will say, well, dude, I got a ton out of the podcast, but what should I do? And it's really, it's really difficult. So guys, like I, I try to provide as much education as possible, 
but realize it's within you or to go to a coach or whatever it may be and take these principles and apply them. But it's always going to be specific to the individual and going to be specific to reading and interpreting the biofeedback and the response that you guys have to these things and then making alterations and titrations and adjustments from there. So it's never the set and forget principle. And I would say like, to learn these principles better, one of the best things you can do is invest in a coach to actually 100%. talk to you, like how we adjust around your biofeedback, what you do with your training, et cetera. All right. So in that case, let's get into it. Starting off again, we really wrapped up part one, just tying up the pre-workout window, the pre-workout meal. So let's dig into the intra-workout period. Kind of what is your approach to intra-workout period and what benefits can we get from using an intra-workout drink? All right. So first and foremost, I'm going to say just, I'm going to be honest with everyone here. Intra-workout is my favorite component of supplementation and nutrient timing. And it's because I feel like it's like a redheaded stepsister. Like no one gives attention to it, but a lot of people don't realize the nuances of it. And it's something that I've seen so much benefit between myself and, and I'll, I'll be honest, it isn't a first priority principle. It isn't something if you're a newer trainee or you're someone that doesn't have your total energy balance nailed in or dialed in, your total macronutrient composition, your micronutrient intake all dialed in. If the hierarchy isn't there, your foundation and your fundamental principles aren't in place, this isn't going to be useful for you. But when you are an intermediate or advanced trainee, this is that extra 5 to 10% that could put you over the edge. So when it comes to intra-workout, my goal of using an intra-workout and intra-workout nutrition in general is to manage both muscle protein breakdown and the cortisol response induced by training by utilizing both amino acids or predigested protein, whatever you prefer, um, and then a high molecular weight carb so that the body doesn't have to worry about diverting blood from your muscles to your stomach to digest these nutrients. So it's, I'm big on predigested nutrients. And by providing both amino acids and glucose in your blood during training through an intra, you can minimize your body's need to go through gluconeogenesis or the breaking down of amino acids into glucose to provide energy as it will already be available in the system. So we're essentially providing a fuel source that's readily available in the bloodstream so that we don't have to go through excess muscle protein breakdown. And so I'm a huge fan, like I mentioned, of intra-workouts and I've found it to provide many benefits to both myself and clients, especially when I add it into a client that's never tried it before. So they really see, we're able to essentially compare and contrast, hey, what is your training like without intra-workout? And then once I add it in, what are the benefits that you see? And generally what I'm seeing is we're able to maintain a more stable blood glucose and thus energy levels. We are able to fuel higher volume and more intense training sessions. We're able to mitigate excess cortisol production and increase in muscle protein breakdown that having high cortisol can cause us. We're also able to, and this is a huge thing, to provide adequate hydration during the training ballot. And with that, we have to realize that hydration isn't just about water. It's not just about fluid. It's also about electrolytes. So you want to do that and you want to help, you want to utilize the intra-workout nutrients, both the carbohydrates and then the electrolytes that you add in to help with the replenishment of electrolytes because what it's, it's important to realize that one of the number one things besides calories that we burn during exercise is we excrete electrolytes heavily um, during a training session, mostly through sweat as well as urination. So if you're a heavy sweater, you're losing grams of sodium. And I've seen that before. And that's why there's drop-offs in training performance. Some people are flat during their workouts. They, they're lacking energy. That easy addition of some electrolytes within that intra-workout period and providing that throughout the workout bout is going to have drastic effects on your training performance. Um, it's going to help with recovery both in between sets. So your recovery in between, you know, 
exercises as well as sets of an exercise, but it's also going to shorten the recovery time course between individual workouts. And then another added benefit, especially for those that are in like a building phase, is it helps with getting extra calories in during your training session. Um, so for those that are eating in a surplus and they're starting to find it more difficult to get in the calories needed, it provides us just with another feeding opportunity, which we can leverage and easily get in. And it's going to be something that isn't more time intensive because it's essentially a multitasking approach where you're feeding your body while training. So it's doing two things during a time period in which you would have already been, have been, um, you know, uh, essentially devoted towards the training process. And then another thing that I very rarely hear people talk about um, in context to uh, using an intra-workout is that intra-workout actually can help mitigate central fatigue. So central fatigue, a lot of people speak on the concept of fatigue. Uh, I think there's a lot of mechanisms that people don't understand, but essentially we have to realize that our neurotransmitters in our brain compete with one another to cross the blood-brain barrier. And this is specifically important when it comes to reducing levels of central fatigue as tryptophan is a neurotransmitter that's most linked to central fatigue because it's, it's linked to the production of serotonin, which eventually goes downstream to melatonin. So having higher levels of tryptophan can lead us to feeling like tired, lethargic, and it also causes us to experience more exercise-induced fatigue. So this is why I like using um, EAAs intra-workout because specifically the BCAs that are contained in EAAs actually compete for absorption and can beat out tryptophan at the blood-brain barrier. So it lowers serotonin production and increases tyrosine production, which helps with dopamine secretion during training. So you can have less, less fatigue. And then we also have to realize that by using carbs intra-workout, we're providing the preferred fuel source for both our muscle and our nervous system. So that ties back into the central fatigue model. So you know, when it comes to muscle, muscle glycogen is the primary fuel source for muscle, whereas blood glucose is the primary fuel source for the nervous system. So in order to be able to maximize both our muscle and nervous system performance, we need to have carbohydrates available into the system. We need glucose availability. So doing this will help to lower both local fatigue at the level of the muscle, but also systemic fatigue at the level of the nervous system. And so what a lot of people, when they talk about fatigue or failure, they don't realize, they don't differentiate between the two. And here's the thing, we can fail during training or have to cut a set short, either due to local or systemic fatigue. And what we really want to do is we want to fail because of local fatigue. We want to go to the point which, in which the target musculature that we're working can no longer do another rep. And that we're at, you know, we're within a few reps of failure. We want to be within that effective rep zone, essentially, where we were speaking about on the last podcast about doing very effective volume rather than junk volume. But a lot of times there's a lot of cases where people are failing because of systemic fatigue that can set in and actually cause you to terminate a set before the actual target muscle has failed. So just an example of this, say that you're doing, Jeremiah, you're doing dumbbell press to failure. For your chest. And um, generally you do say hundred pound dumbbells for 15 at a zero RRR. So that's your failure set is 15 reps with hundred pounds. You know, 15 is around your point of local fatigue for your pecs. But if you go in and train and have a ton of accumulated fatigue due to whether it be low glucose availability, or say you use low rest periods, you cut down your rest from three minutes to one minute and you induce more systemic fatigue. You may hit failure due to that systemic fatigue at 10 to 12 reps. So you're essentially cutting yourself short and getting less effective reps during that set. However, we see that in research that by utilizing 
carbohydrates, especially during this time period, we can lower those levels of systemic fatigue and better fuel performance so that you're better able to take those sets to failure and won't have systemic fatigue be the most limit or an additional limiting factor. So it's just another consideration. I, I very rarely hear people speak about this, except if you look into like the endurance training literature where they're actually looking at the benefits of carbohydrates on fatigue indices. Um, then another thing that I like to utilize intra workout for, and I find a, a really big um, benefit from it is I like to look at it as an opportunity to jump start the recovery process for the muscles I train early on in a workout. So right now, I'll tell you about my training. I'm currently utilizing a high-frequency approach where I'm training both chest, back, and delts together on three of my training days. And within this setup, I'm prioritizing my chest. So on two of those three sessions, I'm training chest first in the session as that's the area that I'm looking to specialize on. And so my sessions generally will take me about 90 minutes in total for all three of those muscle groups. So within the first 30 minutes, you know, I'm pretty much divert, uh, uh, focusing my attention and all my focus just on chest work. But by the time, you know, I finish my back, my delts, maybe some ab work, and then maybe some of post-workout mobility. And I, I like to do sauna if I have time as well. Dude, it's been forever, honestly. You know, by the time I, I really look at it, and I, if I was to time it, it's been about an hour and a half since I completed my last set of chest work. So being that bringing up my chest is a prior, priority, I don't want to train it and then wait two hours to eat, which is why I kind of look at my intro workout almost as a post-workout for my chest while I continue finishing up the rest of my back and delt work within that session. And then we also know that resistance training increases insulin sensitivity and glucose uptake. So once my chest has actually been trained and I've completely finished that portion of the workout, it's essentially that muscle is primed to take up glucose and amino acids that I'm sipping on in that intra workout. And it's going into those muscle stores. And once glycogen has been stored in a muscle, it isn't going to be tapped into and depleted unless that muscle is being trained directly. So it's not like I'm repeating, you know, I'm, I'm depleting my chest while I'm continuing to train. So this is just another added benefit to kind of put it in your guys' mind as a, you know, a conceptual basis. Like, you know, intra workout's great for the fueling, but it's also helping with the recovery aspect. It is interesting from that perspective. Like you just listed so many benefits to intra workout drinks. And as you said, normally in the fitness industry, this is kind of looked at as this redheaded stepchild where people are like, inter workouts are a waste of money. Like that's people essentially like paint it as worthless. But again, like it's crazy to hear. And I think I'm with you on most of that. I might have to go back and re-listen to what you just discussed as far as like the blood brain barrier um, and getting into that. But it is crazy to hear just like how many benefits there are to this versus like how often you'll hear people in the industry talk about how this is just like stupid to even worry about. So um, to get into that a little bit further, I know you mentioned EAAs and carbs, but like what specific sources do you typically recommend intra-workout? Yeah. So I tend to lean towards when it comes to the intra-workout carb source, I tend to lean towards higher quality sources of what are called high molecular weight carbohydrates. So this would include stuff like highly branched cyclic dextrin or carbolins, another example. And from a digestive perspective, I personally prefer highly branched cyclic dextrin as it has a high molecular weight, which allows for more rapid digestion without pulling water into the intestines and GI tract. So this makes sure that I don't feel bloated or distended which is something that I and others that I've worked with have experienced with powders like maltodextrin, which are a little bit lower quality. Mm -hmm. However, you know, I work with people of all different backgrounds, budgets, and things of that sort. So if someone's out there and they don't want to spring for 
a higher molecular weight carbohydrate that's a little bit more expensive, like a highly brain cyclic dextrin or a carblin, um, I'd suggest you go for a cheaper source like Gatorade powder. But if you do go for Gatorade powder, you want to make sure that it's extremely well diluted and that you're not using a huge amount of carbs from Gatorade powder as because it is dextrose and maltodextrin based, it's going to pull more water into the GI tract per unit of glucose than it would be if you utilize like a highly brand sickly dextrin. So what I generally find is that when clients use a higher dose of a Gatorade, they'll feel more bloated from it. And this is something like if you ever chug an actual Gatorade, like a bottle of Gatorade, you'll notice that dumping feeling where it just kind of sits heavy in your stomach. So Ultimately, you want to use something that's readily absorbed and doesn't cause uh, like gastric distress as digestion isn't optimized during training due to the fact that like most of our blood is being shunted away from the GI tract to the working muscles and we're in this sympathetic state. And this is where utilizing that higher molecular weight carbohydrate with a low osmolarity, meaning it won't pull excess water into the GI tract, is helpful as a lot of these designer uh, carb powders have a high amount of glucose units in a complex carb molecule, which allows for faster entry into our small intestine so that it's essentially pre-digesting. So we're getting right into the small intestine and then glucose is making it right into the bloodstream. So it's almost like having an IV drip. That's kind of how I describe it as compared to another carbohydrate source that would take longer to get digested through the small intestine, through the salivary uh, amylase pathways, and, and would take a little bit longer. But remember, we're taking this in a liquid form. So we want as quick of digestion as possible. Then in addition to the carbs, I like to add in something that's going to increase protein synthesis and minimize protein breakdown. And there are a few options that I use with both myself and with other clients within this category. And now a lot of people will um, look at like the protein sources. And now you can, you can use a protein source. Uh, for example, you can use a hydrolyzed whey, uh, which is extremely, it's dying tripeptides, meaning it's already pre-digested. It's essentially the most easily assimilated form of protein powder that you can get. The thing with these is that they tend to be extremely bitter and overly expensive. So I generally just advise an, uh, an essential amino acid product that has all nine essential amino acids. So you guys want to look on the label and make sure it has all nine because you know I've worked in the supplement industry for a very long time. And some people will promote that they have an EAA product but it is not a complete AAA product. So it won't fully synthesize or fully maximize muscle protein synthesis. And now the thing that's great about EAAs is they're pre-digested first and foremost. So they go down like water and they can stimulate MPS just like a whey protein does without that need for digestion. And they also taste and mix way better than the whey hydrolysis. So this is where this is kind of like a little bit of more of an advantage and then besides the carbs and aminos, I usually will also include a few add-ons, including like creatine monohydrate and then salt. And the reason that I, I include creatine, you know, there's a lot of um, different theories on creatine timing. Honestly, when it comes down to it, as long as you have three to five grams per day based on your body weight and you use it consistently, you're going to saturate the cells. However, if you want to get a few percentage points, that's where utilizing it with a carb source is a little bit more beneficial because creatine has been shown to help with enhancing glucose uptake and glycogen storage. So taking it with carbs is beneficial as it will help with resynthesizing glycogen. But at the same time, you're taking in carbs through that intra workout and Carbs have been shown to enhance creatine uptake due to insulin increasing creatine absorption. So this combo of carbs and creatine are like mutually beneficial. They both help the uptake of one another. So it's kind of like 
we're, we're stacking. It's, it's like a one plus one equals three effect. It's very synergistic. And then from a salt perspective, you know, salt's going to help with hydration. It's going to actually help facilitate glucose uptake. Um, and it's going to help with improvements in training performance, uh, endurance, stamina, energy. Um, and this is also going to help you get a great pump, which is something we all want during training. So, um, you know, it's just from like a cosmetic perspective, you're going to look better. You're going to be motivated. You're going to want to push yourself harder in the gym. And then also sodium happens to be the number one electrolyte that we lose through sweat. So it's something we want to make sure we're replacing, whether it be intra-workout or post-workout, but I do see a benefit, um, to doing it during the workout itself. And then one last thing I should probably hit on with the intra workouts. Um, the reason you, you know, you mentioned that a lot of people kind of dismiss intra workouts. And I think it's just because a lot of people, um, have either been going about it in the wrong fashion as to how they prepare their intra and how they use, use it. And like when they approach the workout, like they'll, they'll start doing sets and then they'll start chugging it down or they just won't prepare it properly. So I think this is why that some, some people haven't seen benefits from it or have used it once had a bad experience and then never utilize it again. So first thing that we have to, we have to think about when making an intra workout is you have to dilute it properly. So you need to make sure you use enough water and don't just slam a bunch of powder into a small amount of water, because if you do, it's going to sit heavy on your stomach and not digest well. So your intra workout, just remember this, it should be a six to 8% solution to minimize GI distress. So say that you use like a pull in spring water bottle, Look at the amount of mLs. So a Poland spring water bottle is 16.9 ounces or 500 mLs. And so you want to make sure that you're not exceeding more than 8% of that in, in actual solution or actual powder. And so in terms of a Poland spring bottle, the most powder that you could add to that is 40 grams of powder total. So that wouldn't equal the 8% limit as to that. And that means you have to look at the back of, you know, if it's a 25 gram serving, a highly branched cyclic dextrin with the flavoring and the additives, it's probably 30 grams. So you could probably get one and a third of a scoop into there. But if you're adding EAAs and you're adding salt, and you're adding a five grams of creatine, you're going to be way over that capacity. So keep that in mind. And the thing is, if you don't take in enough water in your intra, you won't be able to transport the nutrients out of the gut and into the muscle. So taking in too little water will result in some of these nutrients just sitting in your gut and not being properly absorbed, which is one of the reasons why I believe people who have used interest once and stopped because they experienced like stomach discomfort and feeling things like bloating and nausea because they've slammed a bunch of powder just in a small bottle. Like sometimes I'll see people with like those mini water bottles and or mini uh, shaker bottles and they say that's what their interest is in. And like, yeah, dude, it's going to sit heavy. Take a protein shake and just put 12 ounces you know, put 50 grams of protein into 12 ounces of water and see how heavy that sits in you. You don't want to be doing that during your workout. And then another thing um, is, and this is something I suggest with all my clients is you should start sipping on it before training. I personally always tell my clients to either start sipping on it during their warm-up routine or even on their way to the gym, as you want to start getting glucose into your bloodstream and basically signal to your body and brain that there's energy available. Remember, your body's looking for signals that we have glucose availability or energy available. And that's the same thing with dieting. When we don't have energy available, we get a signal to the hypothalamus in the brain, which down-regulates energy expenditure in our metabolism because we're always, there's constant, our body and our brain are always in this constant feedback with one another. So it's a feedback mechanism. So starting an intra prior to actually starting your training can help with the absorption as we want to start getting, um, we want it to get into our, our system before we get into our working sets, because during training, we shift into that fight or flight response. So we're in the sympathetic state, which is going to actually take blood away from the GI tract. And it also can impair digestion. 
So we want to have started the process of getting those nutrients in before this actually occurs. And, you know, being in a sympathetic state will also cause you to have lower levels of insulin, which is why some people during training, they go hypoglycemic because they're, they're lowering these levels. So we want to take into consideration that one of the reasons we're using an intra workout is actually to increase insulin levels during this period to provide those cortisol mitigating effects, which will lower muscle protein breakdown. So that's one of the reasons that I suggest not only utilizing insulin secretagogues like carbs and proteins, which increase insulin during this period, but especially starting to drink it before you get to your workout working sets so that your insulin levels have already increased. You're getting this flooding of, of nutrients into your muscles and into your system, and you're actually able to utilize them better than you would if you waited until you already started intense training, your digestion's kind of shut off, you're in this sympathetic state, and then you're not getting the full benefits of what you're taking in. Okay, absolutely. So within this intro workout drink, we have carbs, we have creatine, which it sounds like is somewhat optional, but be like slightly more optimal to include it here with those carbohydrates. Go ahead. Yeah, if you're going to take, honestly, if you're going to take creatine, it's just something convenient. It's a habit stack. It's a habit stacking opportunity. You put one habit with another, but also there's some benefits to it. Just with the the insulin, um, you know, facilitating greater creatine uptake and creatine facilitating better glycogen replenishment. Okay, absolutely. And then we have EAS, and we want to make sure we have all nine within that, and then we have salt. Now from there. And kind of the glaring question here most people are probably wondering is, is this something we keep in all, all the time? Like when we're moving through these different phases of nutrition, we have building phase, we have fat loss phases, we have maintenance phases. Is this always something that's a priority or is that kind of buried by phase? Yeah, no, as with everything, there's, there's a lot of context to be taken into consideration. And generally, I change the amount of carbs and the size of the intro workout itself based on both okay. the phase of training and nutrition that I or a client are in. So we basically want to have the size of our intra match the demands of the training we're doing. We always want to be pairing our nutrition with our training because that's how we optimize outcomes. So how much glycogen you're going to use is dependent on your training volume, the length of your workout, and the rep range you're using. So those are the first priority things that I'm looking at within the programming for a client. So if you're doing more high volume, uh, bodybuilding style hypertrophy work, uh, you could benefit from utilizing more carbs in your workout as compared to if you're in a neurological or strength block where you're using you know, more training with sets around five or so because that's going to be less glycolytic. So for me, I do a lot of specialization cycles with my clients. So we're looking to target you know, certain body parts to bring them up and we're pushing higher training volumes within that meso. So within that, I'm utilizing a higher calorie intro with those clients. And then for you, I know that you do things a little bit different. You go through these phasic periods of different training. So for you, I would say, hey, when you have someone in a hypertrophy phase, use a moderate carb approach. When you have them in a metabolic phase, go to a higher carb intro. And then when you have them in a neurological phase, that's where you can utilize a lower carb intro. Or if someone's dieting and utilizing a neurological phase, you might take the carbohydrates out and just use the AAs. So it's really... Really intro workout, the the principle behind it is we want to base it on the fuel substrate demand of the training that we're doing. And then also, like I said, I also will um, change it or alter it based on the phase of training we're in. So I'm going to use it less with clients during a fat loss phase, but I do find that with some clients who are dieting, it can help to take the edge off of hunger so they have better sessions as a result. Um, so you know, within that, I'll have a smaller amount of carbohydrates. So it's not, you know, I want them to have whole foods and actually be uh, satisfied, but I also want them to have 
good quality training. So it's really going to be based on that client himself. But when I'm, I'm definitely leveraging it during building phases, especially when someone has a poor appetite or even within the context of a dieting phase, when I do refeed days or I do high days or during carb ups for my competitors, I'm utilizing a higher intake within that intra-workout window. And I'm going to, even if someone hasn't been utilizing intra-workout carbs, we had them during the early phase of their, their prep, we get down to the last four weeks and now I'm practicing their carb up. I know how their body has responded to these specific carb sources. So that's where I'm re-adding it in and utilizing it during that, that period within their training where they're most insulin sensitive. And really what it comes down to, I know a lot of people say it isn't necessary and I'm not saying it's hundred percent necessary, but I am saying it's beneficial. And I think what we have to realize is the longer you train and more advanced you get, the more you're going to need to optimize to, you know, everything you're doing to get more out of what you're doing currently. So if this is something that you guys haven't tried, I definitely suggest just utilizing it and see the difference between, you know, you training just with water and then training with an intro workout shape, like I'm suggesting. Okay, absolutely. So within your overall like hierarchy of importance, like, hey, we're looking for the client to have these things dialed in. We have macros, we have supplementation, we have adherence, et cetera. Kind of where does this fall? Would you say this is like if we look at like the muscle and strength pyramids, for example, is this like above supplementation for you at the very top? Of, and I mean, this kind of is supplementation. So I don't know if that's a fair. No, um, no. So I actually, I, Go ahead. I actually see it a little bit differently. So I see, I'll, I'll tell you my hierarchy, which uh, okay, is, is a little bit of a deviation from Eric's, but I'm, I'm pretty sure it's similar. Obviously we have adherence, consistency, um, ability to stick to a plan at the bottom. But if we're looking really at the nutritional components, I'm looking at energy balance first. So what is your total caloric intake? And is it in line with the goals that you have? If you're building, are you in a slight surplus? If you're trying to maintain your body weight or go into a, a body recomposition, are you at least around maintenance? And if you're trying to look for fat loss, we have to be in an energy deficit. From there, I'm looking at macronutrient distribution, protein intake, carb intake, fat intake. Above that, micronutrient intake, electrolyte status, making sure they have proper cofactors. They have everything that they need for enzymatic processes as well as health function. Just above that mm -hmm. is where I, I place nutrient timing, meal, meal timing, and all these strategies. Because within that, you have to realize that intra-workout nutrition is nutrition. Yes, it's in the form of a supplement, but we could put it, you know, if it was really extrapolated out, we're looking at it from a caloric perspective. It is providing us nutrition just in a more convenient and readily accessible form where it's going to be more utilized during that period. Now, I do know people that utilize quote unquote intra workout nutrition and they utilize like gummy bears during their workout. I don't personally take that approach just because you have to realize that you aren't what you, you eat. You are what you digest and absorb. So if digestion is not optimized during the training period, why would you eat something that your body actually has to go through mastication or, or chewing and actually has to go through the full process of digestion? And that's where I use these powders. But supplements are definitely, you know, a rung above all of that. You know what I mean? So I would put nutrient timing, intra-workout nutrition, you know, peri-workout nutrition, especially above supplementation in terms of its importance. Okay, absolutely. And it is interesting. I know recently... And this time kind of ties into the next question that I had for you. So I use highly branched cyclic dextrin for a long time. And then I ran into with this one specific cup I got, it was just wrecking my stomach for like 24 hours after I would use it. Like it was, it was pretty rough, honestly. So I shifted back to Gary for a while. 
Um, and then just recently shifted back to using highly branched dextrin again. And it is very interesting, like everything you're speaking to here with like literally being able to feel the weight in your stomach and how much better that highly branched cyclic dextrin feels versus like the Gatorade. And from listening to this, I wasn't diluting it well enough also, but it is interesting to just know those differences. But my question for you is for anyone that has had a bad experience, kind of like I just mentioned with using it a workout or just hasn't used one so far, like kind of how do you advise them to go about incorporating that or reincorporating that? Yeah. So for those who haven't used an intro workout or don't know if it'll benefit them, I'll tell you, it's something that I've used in almost every training session since like 2010 or 2011. And actually I was introduced to this concept early on. I was at a John Meadows seminar and John was huge. You know, John's a legend RIP to him, but, um, he was huge into the intro workout category. And so at that seminar, it was both a seminar in terms of education, but it was also a training seminar. And he actually brought prepackaged, um, intro workouts where we were able to try. So I'm going through this brutal, you know, mountain dog style workout and I was utilizing it. And I noticed that I expected to be wrecked. I'll be honest with you, just due to the Mm -hmm. training, the brutality of training and everyone that has, you know, anyone that has, um, known John Meadows or seen his stuff, you know, that it's extremely brutal training. So I expected to be, have a lot more doms, a lot more soreness. And I won't say that I didn't. So I'm not trying to make it sound like I survived and I was, I was fine, but I will say that I had a less, a lot less perceived effort during the workout, as well as a lot less soreness and doms after the workout than what I expected. And the only difference during that time was this intro workout. So what I did was when I got back home, I started utilizing it daily. And what I noticed was you know, in terms of my training performance, my endurance capacity, my pumps, my recovery time course, they were all improving. And then from then on, you know, especially within the last few years, uh, I've used them with many, many clients, hundreds of clients. And I'll tell you that both myself and my clients have reported that when we do forget our intro workouts and haven't taken them for a few days, such as like when we go on a vacation or we're traveling, we notice a substantial decrease in recovery and increase in soreness. So yes, it's anecdotal, but you can make sense of it higher fatigue levels, more muscle protein breakdown. And then also from anyone that's had a bad experience. So like I mentioned, dilution is one of the number one things that you need to nail because that's what a lot of people, I don't hear a lot of people, you know, looking into that. They're not looking in. Most people don't know much about hydration besides let me get enough water in where a lot of times they don't realize if you don't have the key electrolytes, your potassium, your magnesium, your sodium, uh, your calcium, that you deplete those and you keep drinking more and more water, you're actually less hydrated than you would be if you were to replete those electrolytes with less water added in. And this isn't to tell anyone to not drink water. It's just saying everything has to be within balance. You have to look at things from a broad-based perspective and realize that things are in isolation. Water does not equal hydration. Water, if you uh, hydration, if you actually look at it in the medical literature, it's the presence of fluids plus electrolytes. That is the definition of proper hydration. So the same thing with learning about intra workouts, you need to apply it properly to get the most benefits. So we also have research that shows that our GI tract will actually adapt over time to consuming carbs during exercise. So for those that have tried it and you had a bad experience, maybe your first or second time, I I really encourage you to try it more often, really try the tips that I put in, you know, I, I mentioned previously about diluting it because if you don't, you know, you don't feel great the first time, and you think that this is a sign that intra-workout nutrition isn't for you, it may just take your body more time to adjust. And you should take a slow and steady approach where you titrate up the amount of carbs and EAAs and the total size of your intro over time. So don't start with what you see on the internet. If someone's proposing, that's why I'm not giving you numbers, don't start with 50 or 60 grams of carbohydrates during this intra-workout window because your favorite influencer said that. 
look at adding just a small amount and titrate up and every day look at it or every session monitor how you feel. So my advice with everything, you know, I've covered in this podcast so far and everything that I'll cover before is experiment with this stuff yourself and try these approaches and try to see yourself as a science experiment where you test things and then you gauge your response to them rather than just being closed off to a new method, you know, a new approach or methodology or feeling like you're scarred from your previous experience and then being unwilling to try it again. Absolutely. Okay. And you, you touched on the research there a little bit, but I actually wanted to ask you a follow-up question from our last Q&A podcast where you talked about some research on the use of intra-workout carbs versus not having an intra-workout carb. Um, if, you're for, if you recall what I'm discussing here, can you dig into that a little bit more? Absolutely. So um, we had, there was a study by Terpenning, and this was actually one that I've always, it's always fascinated me. So it's something that I, I've read multiple times, to be honest with you. And so essentially in this study, they wanted to, to monitor the effects of utilizing intra-workout carbohydrates uh, versus none, so a placebo. So essentially what they did was they gave subjects in a resistance training study 50 grams of carbs from an intra-workout carb shake. And this resulted in both an elevation in insulin and a reduction in cortisol. Mm-hmm. And then they correlated the change in muscle fiber size with the change in cortisol. And what they saw was that in the group taking in the carbs, um, which helped to suppress their, their excess cortisol levels during and after the workout, helped with the adaptations to training as compared to the group who did the same type of training but didn't take in the intra-workout nutrition. So the results basically showed that when cortisol levels were suppressed more, there was a greater increase in muscle fiber size. So basically, those who mitigated excess cortisol the most experienced the greatest muscle growth. And so what we have to realize is that doesn't mean that cortisol, we we don't need to demonize cortisol. No hormone in isolation is negative or positive. It's based on the levels of, so it's always the devils in the dose. So the thing with cortisol is that it's necessary to the training process as we need it to liberate energy, um, but it also breaks down all substrates, including muscle. And the harder we train, the more cortisol you produce which can lead to having a more difficult time training and building muscle. And then especially if you are in an energy deficit where you have a low availability of substrates, low glucose availability, just low calories in general, your body's going to be more likely to tap into muscle tissue to liberate and get essentially turn amino acids into glucose via gluconeogenesis. So you're going to break down more muscle tissue essentially, and you could eat into muscle tissue as a result. And then another thing that was striking about the study was the difference in cortisol response accounted for I believe it was, it was like 74 or 75% of the variance in results. So basically three quarters of the difference in results that they saw between uh, subjects in the study was due to how well each subject's cortisol was managed. And then I've also seen, so that, that's an amazing study, but I've also seen other studies where they've used a combo of 30 grams of carbohydrates paired both, you know, with EAAs. So pretty much the combo that I'm speaking about, but 30 grams of carbs paired with EAAs. And they showed that this led to greater increases in the rates of muscle protein synthesis, lower cortisol levels, and the reduced cytokine levels when consumed during training. And cytokines are just pro-inflammatory, so meaning they're causing excess inflammation, which is part of the training process. But if you, just like with cortisol, hormones and and all these uh, cytokines and these um, you know signaling pathways, they need to be well managed. You need to modulate them and have them in balance. If you have runaway cortisol, meaning very high cortisol levels, if you have runaway inflammation, excessively high inflammation, it's going to blunt the the hypertrophic response you have to training. 
so so interesting and I, I you do such a good job explaining how all of this ties together right as we discussed in our last episode i think it's so easy to look at it it's just okay i train hard i get the stimulus i grow right but that's when it, we're looking at you said like the the variance in that first study you mentioned um 74 of that i believe you said was due to their ability to manage the cortisol response so and, and that really and let's, yeah and let's think about that that's within the training session but also i like to extrapolate that out and sometimes you know when i speak with clients obviously i have a lot of research that i've looked into but i'm not always going to cite that kind of stuff but really what i try to get people to realize is this is a great extrapolation or a great uh finding that we can extrapolate to life who are the people that make the most progress in life in general especially within training are those that can manage their stresses outside the gym just as well as they do inside of the gym so think about cortisol it's a stress hormone those who can manage their stress levels are going to have the best rates of recovery, both in training and out of training. So this is just showing correlations that we know apply to real life. And so we need to realize that it's not in, like studies aren't in this isolated test tube where they only apply within the, you know, certain studies that they only apply within the context of what they were doing. Guys, if you're highly stressed, you're someone that's super busy and you train hard, utilizing an initial workout is going to increase insulin, going to lower cortisol and may help you get a better training effect. So it's something that you should look to at least trying and seeing the effect that it has for you. And even if, you know, for, per se, you don't find a huge benefit from it, you know, you don't find that it greatly increases your training performance, but you're less sore. So you're able to get back to your next session a little bit quicker, or you're able to have better recovery in between sets, or you feel less fatigued mentally during training. These little things add up. So you might not see this drastic return in one session or in a week, but all these things, they compound over time, they add up. So over the course of a training career, that extra five to 10% could add up to pounds of muscle. And that's what I think a lot of times people will look at these, um, uh, these short-term studies, remember, like most of these are in college age individuals. So it's throughout the course of a semester, it's eight to 12 weeks. We don't know the true benefits that some of these effects can have over longer terms. And if you're really invested into this, you should be looking, especially once you're intermediate or advanced to get every percentage point you can. Absolutely. And especially now, I like how we tie this back to stress because especially like, at least anecdotally, it seems people are getting more and more stressed um, even over the last few years of coaching, I don't know if that's just from my perspective or not, but it's, I definitely think like all the things we can do to help mitigate that and create better results are worth it. So definitely hit the intra-workout period here pretty hard. Let's go ahead and dig into post-workout nutrition, starting off with what should our goal with post-workout or with the post-workout meal be? Absolutely. Actually, you know what I wanted to hit on before we get onto this? I did want to follow up on what we discussed with the carb mouth rinsing, actually. You know why? Because okay, no. that actually ties that ties into intra-workout nutrition because all those studies are actually looking at essentially we have research looking at carbohydrate mouth rinsing, where you know, subjects will just swish carbs in their mouth without actually ingesting those carbs. And in some of these studies, we do see an improvement in training performance as compared to the placebo group. So this is just another example of how utilizing some form of carbohydrates during your workout can be beneficial. Um, and then in one of these studies, I believe they compared, and I think I mentioned this on the last podcast, um, a carb-containing sports drink like either Powerade or Gatorade to a zero-carb-free uh, carb alternative, Powerade Zero or G2, and saw a benefit in training performance from the carb-containing mouth rinse but not when they utilize the one that was artificially sweetened. So it wasn't just a flavoring 
uh, respect. And, you know, in some of these studies, we see things like an increase in total training volume by the end of the session, um, as well as increased muscular endurance and mean power output. So this benefit in training volume and performance is, is thought to be due to a central effect where we have carb sensing receptors in the mouth that actually sense the glucose coming in. And this triggers a part in the brain associated with motivation and reward through dopaminergic pathways. So think about dopamine. Dopamine is our reward and it kind of pushes us towards things. So dopamine is kind of something that, that draws us towards um, reward and pleasure and also helps us with the motivational aspect of things. So this can just even help from a mood state perspective during training. And this has been shown to improve training outcomes and also lower feelings of fatigue, especially central fatigue. So it's tying back to what I was speaking about earlier, where we're having lower levels of central fatigue. So now we're more likely to be able to really push our body towards the point of local muscular fatigue, which is really what we want. And then to me, this, this makes sense as carbohydrate digestion actually starts in the mouth. So our body is able to tell when actual carbs are coming in as compared to the artificially sweetened beverage. And then also glucose is the main fuel source for the central nervous system. So that's why it's mitigating that central nervous system fatigue. So really when it comes down to it, guys, like even just taking in a carb mixture and swishing it around your mouth can help as it's basically sending a signal to your brain that there's glucose availability and thus energy available so that we can expend more energy during our training and train harder as a result. And I even think, you know, I, I really like to bring things back. I'm very big into metabolic adaptation. We've had several podcasts on that. I always try to look at things from an evolutionary perspective. I really try to think about like our bodies were evolved and made to do certain things. So why are we seeing these things? Why are we seeing these adaptations to what we're doing, to these inputs that we're providing our body with? And from an evolutionary perspective, I feel like if, a, if the brain and body senses there's energy around, especially before, during, and after training, it suggests to, to our systems that we have nutrients available and we can push ourselves harder because in those days, like evolutionarily, we would have had more energy available or we would have done more activity when we had energy available, whereas we would have downregulated our, you know, need, we would have downregulated our metabolism during times of famine. You know, our bodies would have downregulated ourselves for survival. And then from another perspective, you know, I was just thinking about in my head with the carb mouth rinsing. Another thing this reminds me about is this is something that we see in other, you know, not just in the weight room. Like think about any basketball or professional football player. You, you see them doing this with Gatorade, like in between, they'll switch Gatorade, you know, in between plays to keep going. So I feel like there's multiple areas where both intra-workout nutrition and even just like this carb rinsing is used and have shown benefits, but it really takes us looking like really looking a layer deeper to realize how this can all benefit us within the context of the gym and within the context of building muscle. So there's so, so many lines that we could pull from and apply it to what we're doing. But a lot of times people get so locked into, Hey, this is what everyone's been doing in the gym that they don't extrapolate from data from other areas. Absolutely. Is carb rinsing something that you've ever actually prescribed? Just out of curiosity. It's, I'll be honest. It's not something I've ever Such utilized with clients. It's yeah. not something I've utilized with clients. Is it something that I've utilized? Yes. And so really? what I will say okay. is I have noticed a benefit, but I'm not sure if it's psychological or not. And I'm going to be honest about that because I've looked at many studies on carbohydrate mounts rinsing since they first started becoming prominent around 2016, 2017. And just the effects that I've seen now we have to realize that placebo is a hell of a drug. You know, placebo a lot of times is better than a supplement. You know what I mean? Or it's 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 sim it's very close to it. So there's actual placebo trials that have looked at giving someone caffeine as compared to telling them that they've gotten the same dose of caffeine but giving them a placebo pill and their performance increases the same. And we know that caffeine is one of the 
most effective ergogenic aids that we have out there. It's proven time in and time again. So there is a power placebo. So I have utilized carb mouth rinsing during dieting, during contest preps, or in between sets or in between workouts. I've swished my intra workout. I've put an intra workout <coughs> on the side and have not consumed it because I didn't have calories that day or those calories allocated towards intra workout. I had noticed a benefit, but I don't know if it's from the placebo. I don't know if it's the psychology. I also know that I've, I've researched the studies and I've looked into them. So I know that they're supposed to have a better positive training effect. So I could have been tricking myself, but regardless, I don't care because it let me perform yeah. better and feel better. So ultimately if it works, it works. Interesting. I was just curious if that's something you use in like a contest prep application for example. Uh, in, in terms very low. With me, yes. Have I used it with clients? No. And the reason for not using it with clients is there's so much context that gets behind it. And I also don't want to, I'm someone I'm extremely disciplined and it's not to say my clients aren't the same, but I know what it takes to take in a very good (laughs) flavor, a flavored drink that has calories and to spit it out. It is something that takes an immense amount of discipline. And it's essentially like anytime that I'm having someone diet, I'm trying to put stop gaps in between behaviors that could potentially turn into them going off the, the rails. Whereas I know with myself, I'm handling my prep. I'm completely 100% accountable and responsible myself. If I want to experiment with something, that's on me. I'm not going to put my a client into a potentially precarious position where they're going to be likely to chug this whole thing a Gatorade and get in 48 grams of carbs because I had them swishing in between sets. Yeah. Okay. That makes sense. Uh, cool. Let's dig into then the post-workout period and kind of what our goal is with our post-workout nutrition. All right. So from a high level view, let's just realize that we can only make progress and better our physiques off an amount of training we can adequately recover from. And recovery should start as soon as that workout is done. So what we do after training will dictate how well we respond and adapt to the training we just completed, how well we'll recover, and how intense we can push our next training session in an order to improve upon our previous training performances And then also ensure that we're presenting our bodies with a progressive stimulus. So post-workout to me is is the period in which that's when the recovery process begins. And nutrition is the number one most powerful tool we can use to optimize our recovery so that we can positively adapt to our training and actually grow as a result. We do not grow in the gym. We grow outside of it. And it's within that nutrition. That training is a stimulus. The nutrition is what rebuilds everything and allows that process to tick off and adaptations to take place. So within post-workout nutrition, I'm looking at two things primarily. First, I'm looking to have people take in protein. We want to do this because we want to repair the tissue we've broken down through the process of training. We want to make sure that we're maximizing protein synthesis so that we can accrue new muscle tissue and also reduce protein degradation, which is essentially muscle protein breakdown. We're breaking down tissue during our training session. Um, And then we're also more sensitive to the effects of protein after training and can actually utilize a higher dose of it as compared to when we're in a non-training state. So we should take advantage of this when our muscles are in like this heightened uh, state of sensitivity to amino acids by nailing a bolus bolus dose of protein post-workout. We also have to think about what else is going on during the training session. We have increased blood flow. So not only do we have increases in insulin sensitivity, but we have more blood flow to the muscles that we just trained. So taking in protein, those amino acids are going to have greater transport and uptake into the muscle cells itself because of that increase in blood uh, blood volume as well as blood flow. From there, I'm looking to take in carbohydrates. And we do this because we want to refuel and replenish the glycogen storage uh, stores that we depleted and use to fuel our training. 
We want to lower fatigue and also put us into a parasympathetic state so we can enhance our recovery capacity and digestion. And then we want to stimulate the production of insulin, which will help with the delivery of amino acids into muscle. It also helps with mitigating muscle protein breakdown. Um, and then also helps with lowering cortisol production so that we can shift from that state of catabolism where we're breaking down tissue into a state of anabolism where we're building tissue rather than breaking it down further. And then from there, you know, in addition, some of my goals are we want to also rehydrate and refuel energy stores for the next session. Okay. Within the timing of this, so let's say you had a pre-workout meal, a post-workout meal, or excuse me, a pre-workout and an intra-workout is there, again, like you'll hear about, like we have the anabolic window and then people will say it's more like the anabolic barn door. What's generally like, if we are eating this pre-workout meal, what's just like your general recommendation if you're okay with giving that out as far as like, we should try to eat it within about this time frame. And of course, this will probably be pretty product dependent. Absolutely. So within timing, I'd say we want to get in a meal within one to two hours of finishing our workout. So like I mentioned previously, when we train, we're in a sympathetic state. So we're essentially in fight or flight, which shunts blood away from our digestive tract into our muscles. So post-workout, there's no need to rush to eat. If you're going to eat immediately, you might impair digestion. So I personally, when I approach my post-workout nutrition, I want to be in a parasympathetic state, which is that rest and digest state, so that I'm not only able to enjoy my meal, but I'm also able to absorb it better as we aren't what we eat. We're essentially what we can digest, assimilate, and absorb which is especially important when you're taking in your largest meal of the day. So I do bias the largest amount of my calories, especially carbohydrates in that post-workout window. So, you know, that's what I do personally. But when I have a client who has to eat quickly post-training due to training before work or due to their schedule or whatever it may be, I'll just have them do something to get themselves in a parasympathetic state. So that could be deep breathing. That could be a couple of breathing drills. That could be going for a walk post-workout and just making sure that you're away from your phone, you have no distraction, you're really able to get into a restful state or just take a few minutes to chill You know, after the gym and just sit down, breathe and relax, maybe take a shower real quick and get them into that rest and digest state. So the first priority in a pre-workout meal, you know, in terms of, you know, going past that is to get in a complete protein source, which contains all the amino acids, especially the nine essentials, which will stimulate MPS. So I'm either looking to use a whole food animal source or a whey protein. And when it comes to taking in carbs post-workout, especially if I'm using a large dose with myself or a client, which is generally what I tend to do, um, I'm going to use multiple transportable carbs, meaning I'll pair a glucose source with a fructose source. And the reason that I do this, and this is not something that a lot of people um, do, this is actually something that you and I covered in our last uh, Coach's Corner, was that the reason for this is that we actually have a limit as to how much glucose we can take in at one time. So we can absorb around one gram of glucose per minute or 60 grams per hour into the small intestine. But say that you take in a meal of 120 grams of carbohydrates post-workout you're going to saturate the GLUT4 transporters within the GI tract, which will then slow down the absorption. So by utilizing another carb source like fructose, which utilizes a different glucose transporter, it actually utilizes GLUT5, we can increase absorption and get in a higher dose of carbs more effectively and then have less potential for GI distress from having in a high amount of carbs. So I'll often use fruit post-workout for this very purpose. And, you know, I, I want to dispel a couple of myths about fruit because this is something I, I often will post in my stories. Um, you know, I'll have fruit within my meals and I get a lot of questions about fruit. And a lot of people think eating flu, uh, fruit, first and foremost, is, is harmful for them, which it isn't. 
Um, second of all, they think that it cannot replenish muscle glycogen stores, but actually most fruit sources are actually a 50-50 split between fructose to glucose. So they use multiple transporters just within fruit to be absorbed. But even if you took in just fructose after your workout, you'd still replenish glycogen stores within 24 hours. So we actually have studies that have compared a glucose source and sucrose. And they've seen that when they look at each carb's ability to restore glycogen in comparison to one another, the difference in rate of glycogen resynthesis between the two is essentially negligible. So glucose is a little bit uh, better at restoring glycogen and resynthesizing glycogen, but it's, it's nominal, meaning it doesn't make a significant difference. So even if you were just to take in a fructose source post-workout or a sucrose source, you would still be able to, to replete glycogen. It's just, you know, it's, it's better to get a glucose source in, but it, you're not, you're splitting hairs there. Um, but I find that this to be beneficial because, you know, there's a lot of people that kind of demonize fruit because they kind of extrapolate out what fructose does in isolation, not realizing that fruit, you know, fruit uh, is essentially a 50-50 split, but utilizing fruit post-workout is something I've seen highly beneficial, especially for those that are low on low calories during a fat loss phase, because this is allowing you to not only get a higher fiber source, it's allowing you to get something with better satiety because most fruits have a very high satiety index and they also have, you know, a plethora of micronutrients. So if you're, you have a low carbohydrate intake and you're, you want something that's going to be more satisfying, look at something like strawberries. You get, you know, for 140 grams or a cup of strawberries, it's like 15 grams of carbohydrates. There's going to be no other carb source that you can take in besides vegetables that are going to provide that low of energy density, that low amount of calories, 40 or 50 calories for that amount of, of food volume. So it's going to help you feel fuller, more satiated on that low uh, calorie allotment, but also get a ton of micronutrients and nutrients into your system which will help you not only better manage hunger, but optimize health as well. And then one thing I, I do want to hit on, because we haven't really hit on the, the topic of fats within this whole thing. And, and honestly, that's because fats, out of all the macronutrients, are the least important in terms of peri-workout nutrition. Mm -hmm. But for the most part, if you are glycogen depleted, taking in fats post-workout may slow down, but it won't impair glycogen replenishment. But I just generally don't see a need or a benefit from including fats in the post-workout meal as there isn't any muscle building, there's no recovery, or even like performance advantage to adding them in as compared to just consuming protein and carbs post-workout. So for example, if a client is dieting, I'll tend to bias fats away from that peri-workout window instead of taking in fats and calories out of other meals and adding it post-workout, which is already the highest calorie meal of the day that's going to be the largest percentage of their carbs for the day. So I would rather leave more of their fats and bias them outside of the workout window to keep them more satiated in those other meals rather than pulling calories from other meals. Because when it comes to fat loss, it comes down to energy balance. They need to be in a deficit. So I don't want to take from one meal and add it to another meal that's already large and filling. And then I also tend to keep fats lower post-workout, even in building phases, as fats do delay and slow down digestion. So if I do have someone in a surplus who's already eating, say, a large meal, say they're eating 50 grams of protein and 150 grams of carbohydrates post-workout, taking in a large dose of fat is only going to slow down digestion. And then that could potentially impair their appetite and their ability to get in their subsequent meals. And then another thing of being in a building phase is say that you do decide that you just want to add some more calories in. You're like, listen, I'm bulking. I can afford the calories. So I'm adding some fats to my already large post-workout meal. And that's going to cause you to increase your surplus. Now, here's the thing with that. Taking in those extra calories in the form of fats is almost going to guarantee you store them as excess body fat because now you're taking in more calories first and foremost. So now you're in a larger energy surplus, but you're also taking in the form of fats, 
which are almost entirely stored in adipose or fat tissue. So, you know, whereas if you had made that more from carbs or more from protein, you'd see less, you'd see it be less likely to store them as fat as protein, first and foremost, we know is difficult to store as fat and usually gets oxidized or burned off in excess. And we also have both muscle and liver glycogen reserves to store carbohydrates in. So they have less of a potential to get converted to fat than excess calories from fat. So that's really where I kind of try to leverage this. You know, in a dieting phase, let's bias it outside of that window because it's not providing any benefit and could potentially lower the satiety or the, you know, the, the energy that you have for your other meals. And then also in a building phase, it's not necessary first and foremost, it can impair digestion and kind of impair your ability to get the rest of your meals in throughout the day. But also if you're just adding in more calories for more calories sake, like sometimes people will tell me, Oh, I have a post-workout shake. I put a bunch of uh, carbohydrates and, and protein powder into a, sh- uh, you know, a blender. And I also add in a couple scoops of, of extra peanut butter because it's extra calories. Eh probably not the best option if you want to, you know, have a lean building phase. So it's just something, you know, to take into consideration. Absolutely. And that somewhat ties into what we discussed in the lean gains blueprint series as well. Um, it's really cool. I feel like our last five podcasts have kind of almost been like a continuous series that keeps building on one another. So, um, I would also say again, like from a lean gains perspective, if that's something you're interested in, I think like this very much ties in and complements that very well. So definitely go back and check out that series as well. So let's say you have someone that is like dieting more aggressively. Um, do we like quote unquote need carbs post-workout or would you consider that like more optional? I know you just discussed all these benefits, but is that something like we have to have? All right. So, you know, carbs aren't an, an essential macronutrient. So they're not needed post-workout, but based on the fact that resistance training depletes our our carbohydrate stores, I think there's a lot of benefits to including them in that post-workout meal. And also resistance training upregulates a lot of processes involved in glucose uptake. So if we're going to eat a higher amount of carbs at any time of the day, I'd suggest or I'd argue that post-workout would be the best time to do so, which is why I personally allocate a larger percentage of my carb and my client's carbs uh, intakes post-workout. And then there's also a ton of benefits to leveraging carbs post-workout that I think that if someone is considering, should I eat carbs or should I not? I think you guys should consider these first. So first thing I could think of is we get um, this insulin and GLUT4 translocation after workout. So essentially, uh, training increases both our nutrient partitioning and our insulin sensitivity through something called GLUT4. And GLUT4 translocation is upregulated with training and physical activity. So when we've trained, we've essentially like primed our muscles to uptake glucose and essentially convert it into stored glycogen in order to replenish those glycogen stores that we've depleted through training. So GLUT4 transporters are actually usually insulin dependent, meaning that they translocate to the cell, to the muscle cell, in order to allow glucose in only when insulin is present. But here's the thing. When we train and we go through the process of contracting our muscles, we actually activate an independent or an insulin independent translocation of GLUT4 transporters, meaning that we can now pull in glucose into the muscle without the need for insulin. So this is actually the, one of the main ways that resistance training increases our insulin sensitivity because now our cells are more receptive to the, the effects of insulin because it needs less insulin to get the, the amount of carbohydrates we're taking in into the body. So it essentially lowers the need for the body to produce excess or high levels of insulin to absorb nutrients. So basically your muscle cells are primed to take in carbs. And by taking in carbs, 
you also raise insulin, which enhances the uptake and shuttling of carbs and amino acids into muscle even more. So there's basically like this multi-pronged effect. That's kind of how I look at it. Resistance training has upregulated your insulin-independent pathway of bringing glucose in, but you also have insulin that you could leverage in that post-workout window, which can be done through taking in an adequate amount of protein as well as carbohydrates. So, you know, you have this benefit to taking in carbs post-workout, both from an insulin-dependent and an insulin-mediated perspective. But the thing is, in order to take advantage of this upregulation in GLUT4 translocation and for that enhanced glycogen replenishment, you want to eat within 30 minutes to about 120 minutes post-workout. Because if not, the GLUT4 transporters will relocate back to the exterior of the cell. So that upregulation that's insulin independent only lasts in research for about two hours. So this is why um, I'll use the majority of my carbs around that peri-workout window, and then I'll actually taper in the, the intake in the hours after. So this is also important, you know, even from like a non-insulin perspective, if we really look at like what happens during training, we induce muscle damage, we get DOMS. Well, if you look into literature on muscle damage and on DOMS, it can actually interfere with insulin sensitivity and actually limit glycogen resynthesis. So there's actually studies that look at the effects of eccentric training. So we know that eccentric are more of long, like lengthened muscle um, or really um, accentuating the eccentric um, portion of the motion in long muscle lengths, they're more damaging. But also, if you were to do eccentric training protocols, they A, cause more muscle damage, they cause more DOMS, but they also can lower insulin sensitivity. So the thing is that we usually don't see in this research or in any of the literature, DOMS kicking in until six hours after training. So we have this window after training where we should be able to take advantage and put more carbs in before our ability to resynthesize glycogen goes down. So we had like this window. It's a few hours. It's not saying that's the anabolic window, but in terms of carb availability and, and our ability to utilize carbs better and be more insulin sensitive, it's about a six hour window. So I'm saying for post-workout, you know, we're looking at two hours post-workout for that glute four translocation, but also six hours for a higher state of insulin sensitivity post-workout. So that's where I'll utilize more larger meals in that post-workout window. And then also we see that having low levels of glycogen increases AMPK which is essentially the energy sensor of the cell. So when glycogen stores start going, getting low, the body senses this state of low glucose availability and will decrease mTOR signaling, which, you know, just mTOR for anyone out there, that's the opposite of AMK. So mTOR is needed for the process of stimulating muscle protein synthesis and building muscle, both of which are energy costly processes. So when the body senses that there's low energy, it turns off our ability to synthesize muscle because they're so energy ex expensive processes. Now, we can stimulate mTOR in a variety of ways, including through resistance training or protein intake, but also what a lot of people don't realize is that insulin independently activates mTOR. So um, insulin actually activates uh, the PI3K pathway, I believe, which can turn on mTOR. And once mTOR is activated, it then sets up those chains of reactions, which turn on muscle protein synthesis. So taking carbs is one way that we can turn on mTOR and help build muscle. And then from a glycogen resynthesis perspective, if you're doing something like a higher frequency training program, you're hitting multiple muscle groups, or you're doing full body training, you're going to want to replenish glycogen post-training so that you don't delay glycogen resynthesis. And another thing is a lot of times people just think about resistance training, but if anyone out there is doing two a day training, so say you're in a contest prep, say you're dieting and you are doing both a resistance training session and a cardio session at different times in the day. So you're depleting substrates at different, you know, maybe you do fasted cardio in the morning and then you do a weight training session at night or vice versa. 
you're going to want to replete glycogen post-workout because you're utilizing these substrates at different times of the day. It's not like you're doing all your activity at once and then repleting glycogen. So basically, when someone asks me, is carbs necessary? Nothing is necessary. Just general nutrition is necessary. Our essential fats, our essential amino acids, those are necessary. If you want to maximize things and you have the calories and the carbs available in your diet, I think you should leverage this post-workout window where glucose uptake is enhanced so that you can replenish your glycogen source quicker. You can accelerate recovery by lowering the muscle protein breakdown rates and also lower the cortisol that we spoke about that is inherently tied to building muscle. And then also get yourself into a parasympathetic state which can help your nervous system recover quicker because we know that carbohydrates help to increase levels of serotonin, which we spoke about previously with tryptophan. So serotonin is going to help put you in a more sedative state, a more relaxed rest and digest state. Okay, absolutely. So I think that's a pretty compelling argument for both carbs post-workout and also why glycogen replenishment post-workout is very important. Um, are there any other benefits of peri-workout nutrition you think the listeners need to know about? Honestly, I think we've covered pretty much almost all of them that I could think of. There are some interesting um, research that has looked at in isolation, um, essentially comparing. I know there's a study by Crib and Hayes that essentially looked at the comparison of isolating pre and post-workout nutrition in comparison to um, utilizing it at different times. So essentially the Crib and Hayes study, if I remember correctly, they, they showed that there was an added benefit to consuming protein and carbs pre and post workout as compared to other times in the day, even when protein and calories were equated. So this was, I believe a 10 week training study where they split them essentially into two groups. And one group received a protein and carb supplement, both pre and post workout, which is essentially the, the whole concept of peri-workout nutrition. And then the other group received the same protein and carb supplement but instead they did it in the morning and evening. And I believe it was within five workouts of the workout window or five hours rather of the workout window. And then after the 10 week training study, the group using the pre and post workout nutrition approach had greater gains in lean body mass. They had better bench and squat um, strength. They also had bigger muscle cross or uh, muscle fiber cross-sectional area. And they also took muscle biopsies and saw greater amounts of myofibular protein content as well as glycogen content within the muscle. And what's really interesting about this is the groups were taking the exact same protein, carb, and calorie amounts. So it wasn't like there was any difference in that, but it just showed that they leveraged the effects of this nutrient partitioning approach that training has. And so they were able to get benefits despite the only change being the timing that they consumed it at. So despite the macros being equated, the timing of those nutrients in regards to their training played a massive role in the gains that they got from the exact same training protocol. And the really interesting thing about this study is that they took resistance-trained individuals. So first of all, it's on resistance-trained individuals, which is huge um, because a lot of these studies are on newbies who are going to respond to anything, to be honest with you. And mm -hmm. what they did prior to that 10-week training intervention with the pre- and post-workout nutrition was they did, I believe, a six-week stabilization period, meaning that they familiarized them with the training protocol. So they got past that period of making newbie gains. So we know that in the beginning, the beginning of phase of any training, we're making neurological adaptations. So if you're changing your training all the time and you think that you're making improvements, realize that a lot of what you're making is neurological adaptations to getting more efficient at movement patterns, not because you're building muscle. So when they started the study, they were already adjusted to the training program, the stimulus they were providing it with. So I find this study to be a little bit more applicable because they weren't just making improvements or strength gains 
due to the novelty of the new training stimulus. So this got rid of that potential for newbie gains. And this is an example pretty much of a pure timing, nutrient timing effect. So same calories, same macros, same everything, just different timing, better results. Absolutely. And kind of just carry on top of a very compelling argument for why nutrient timing is so important. Like upon listening to this series, I don't, I think it would be very hard to argue that it's just kind of irrelevant. But to kind of tie into that, what do you think about all the criticism as far as nutrient timing goes? Like there's so many people out there that seems in the industry with this nihilistic approach that it doesn't even matter. Like where do you think that comes from? Or like, what are your thoughts on that? Man, this is something that I could go on for days, to be honest with you. Um, because I've gotten into a lot of these, especially when I was on the boards years ago and I was yeah. a believer in nutrient timing. I saw it with myself and with many clients. I used to go back and forth with people and I, I don't anymore. But if you ask certain people within the nutrition industry about nutrient timing, even some within like the evidence-based scene, they'll say that it doesn't matter when you time your calorie intake as long as you get it in. And I think these opinions come from a misinterpretation of the data. I think a lot of people speak, but without reading. And that's a big problem that we have because there's a lot of individuals in this space that have a voice, but they don't really have the knowledge or experience that is equated or equal to the platform at which they have. So they have this large platform. They do a lot of, they, they talk a lot but they don't really have the knowledge and experience to back that up, but it's hard to differentiate it. You know, I, I know Lane Norton always makes this comparison where he says, it's always easy to tell if you, if someone else knows more than you. So if you hear someone speaking at a seminar or on a podcast, it's easy to know, Hey, does that individual know more than I do about this topic? However, when you hear two individuals debating each other that are both more well-versed in a topic than you are, it's really hard to differentiate. Hey, who knows more about that subject or who's more right? out of those two, because they both know more than you. So it's hard from your perspective. And when it comes to nutrient timing, there's even some reviews on nutrient timing um, that kind of put it in a sense where it doesn't matter that much. Like they, they'll say that it doesn't matter that much, but many times these reviews were done on studies using either untrained or novice trainees where they're going to get results regardless of whether they use a nutrient timing approach or not, because they're so far away from their genetic ceilings and muscle building potential. So they're going to grow just from training and eating enough calories and protein alone. So the timing aspect isn't as important to them. But when we look at someone that's intermediate or advanced like ourselves, this is where nutrient timing can really amplify your results. Because if you can fuel harder, more progressive training, you can recover better. And then you can come back and train hard again. It's going to lead to better results with your physique over time. And then I think another thing that a lot of people that make criticism about nutrient timing fail to realize is I think a lot of them are confusing protein timing with nutrient timing. So for example, the one review I always hear people talk about in context of nutrient timing is a review by Schoenfeld and Aragon, which is a great review. And most will bring this up when they're talking about nutrient timing. But here's the thing, that review, if you actually go through it, it wasn't done on the actual broad-based you know, concept of nutrient timing. It was actually an isolated look at protein timing. So although what they showed was that the anabolic window is much bigger than what we once thought, so it's more like a garage door, essentially, which I agree. Like I said, I don't suggest you eat exactly post-workout. I said one to two hours. Um, so I'm not suggesting that anyone you know, rush to slam a, a post-workout protein shake immediately after they finish their last set. I think a lot of this information has been dumbed down so much by others who really haven't actually went through their review and haven't actually read research that it's caused many to think that they don't need to eat after training. But in reality, their research just showed that we have a longer period of increased anabolism post-workout 
we're being strategic about what we consume in this period can benefit us. So what they showed in their review was there wasn't this 30 minute to an hour window after your workout that you needed to get protein in. It was that for the 20, up to 24 hours after training, we have an upregulation in uh, amino acid sensitivity. So within that period, getting multiple boluses of protein and spreading them out is going to benefit you from a muscle protein synthesis perspective as well as a muscle building perspective. But we also have to take into consideration that that 2013 meta-analysis that Schoenfeld did was only on protein timing, not on nutrient timing. And then also, if you actually go through the review, I believe there was 23 or 24 studies, but I, you know, I'm not sure about, I'm almost certain it was 24, but it could have been 23. However, I do know for a fact that only three of them actually used trained individuals and only a couple were actually technically timing studies. So when they published their results, that total protein intake across the day mattered more than timing. There's a lot of confounding variables that led to this conclusion and that shouldn't be extrapolated out and applied to a much bigger you know, concept, which is nutrient timing. And you know, for those who do think that it doesn't matter, I encourage them to actually examine the type of studies that were looked at in relation to protein intake, because many of these studies honestly don't reflect what trained individuals like you or I or any of our clients would actually do on, the, on a daily basis in the gym. So you know, when you guys look at studies, first of all, go through the meta-analysis. I, I really suggest if you guys are into research and you want to really see how things are conducted, it's nothing against the researchers in them, of themselves. But if you actually look on the studies on muscle protein synthesis that were used in this study, they'll usually look at like utilizing a few sets of leg extensions and they'll measure muscle protein synthesis levels after like post-workout protein feeding or they'll do like a max of two exercises within a workout, which isn't how anyone who's intermediate or advanced would actually approach a leg day. So I would argue that post-workout nutrient timing is a lot more important for us, like those of us who train really hard and that are experienced, than the subjects in these studies do who are training much, much, at a much lower intensity and much lower volume. And really when it comes down to it, whenever you do read a study or a meta-analysis or whatever it may be, you want to look for external validity. And what that means is you want to look at what extent do these subjects match me and what I'm trying to do. So taking what a beginner does in these untrained individual studies, you know, isn't something an advanced trainee should follow. So just because they didn't utilize nutrient timing with beginners and they got gains doesn't mean that we shouldn't advance individuals. So although some may not think it's necessary, if it's something that can help you and doesn't hurt you, my whole mentality with it is why not take advantage of it? And then since that, a lot of people utilize that 2013 meta-analysis as like evidence that nutrient timing doesn't work. Now, here's the thing. There's so many more studies that have come out since 2013 that obviously weren't included in the meta-analysis because they weren't available, yet people still utilize this meta-analysis from almost 10 years ago as evidence that it doesn't matter much. Yet, even after that review, if you guys actually look, um, like the ISSN actually published a position stand on nutrient timing in, I believe, 2018, so five years after this um, the, the review by Schoenfeld and said that pre-exercise ingestion of protein or amino acids has been shown to result in significantly greater increases in muscle protein synthesis. And the addition of carbs, especially post-workout, is both well-tolerated and promotes greater restoration of muscle glycogen. And then they also went on to say that um, ingesting carbohydrates in combination with protein during exercise increases muscle glycogen stores, offsets muscle damage, and facilitates greater training adaptations after both acute and prolonged periods of resistance training. So if nutrient timing and peri-workout nutrition didn't matter, then we could all just eat all our protein and calories in one meal and get the same results as we would spreading them across the day and across the training window. But we all know that that doesn't work in real life. So overall, when I hear these criticisms, I think 
whenever we look at the limited data we have on nutrient timing and on the peri-workout nutrition window, we need to realize that when we eat is far less research than how much we eat and what type of food we eat. But it's still really important and it's a tool in our toolbox. So anyone that who is intermediate or advanced should use, you know, use this tool if they're looking to take their body composition, their training performance and recovery to the next level. Because ultimately we want to prioritize the things we can do that will have the most significant impacts with the least amount of drawbacks. And although nutrient timing is what I'd call like icing on the cake, sometimes that icing can make a world of a difference when you're trying to eke out every bit of progress and you've been stalled and you've been in this for so long that you need to pull another level lever to make progress. Absolutely, man. I think, I believe that you correlated this to training in our last podcast. We discussed like you had a client who's, for example, going to N one seminars and really getting into all the nuances of like mastering execution, right? Where this is essentially how I see it. Because I think that part of why like there was a shift away from like, or kind of this nihilistic perspective of like, it doesn't matter. Like the pendulum just swung so far in that direction. Whereas like, I can understand like, Hey, maybe you're new to this. Hey, maybe we focus on your overall macros before we get into like all the nuances of nutrient time. Right. But that's not to say it doesn't matter. Kind of like as you continue to grow in this and I mean, you go from like, okay, maybe initially I'm just focusing on these big compound movements. And then now I'm getting more into these nuances and thinking about like length and overload versus short and overload and all these different nuances of training. Same thing with nutrition. Like as you continue to progress, we need to gain a deeper understanding of that to continue to make great progress throughout our years of training. Um, man, I think we really crushed this. I really appreciate all the depth you went into on both of these episodes. I truly think this is going to be the best series on nutrient timing available. Um, did you have any parting thoughts that you wanted to leave the audience with? Yeah, just from a, like a broad-based coaching perspective, for anyone out there that is that is that person that's nihilistic in their approach, and they've kind of taken a perspective where they've been in the game forever, they've tried everything, and they've gotten to a point, and I do have friends, I have clients that have come to me in these situations where they're not unwilling to try a different approach because they think they've tried everything, but maybe they haven't tried it optimally. And there's a big difference between what's, um, what's sufficient and what's optimal. These are two different approaches. And it's not that you have to be perfect, but optimal is within the constraints of your lifestyle and with, within the constraints of what you can do. But really, I, I see this, even if you don't want to get into the nuances and you listen to all this and you say, oh, that's really complicated. How can I dumb this down? I also, you know, with clients that aren't at that nuance level where I need to eke out every bit of progress with them, but I still want to help them progress and integrate this in their lifestyle, I kind of just see it as a way to integrate habit stacking with clients. So really how I, I try to, um, explain nutrient timing is I want them to associate fueling before and after workouts with the process of training. And this is especially helpful with my female clients. And I think this will really relate to a lot of the women that you work with, Jeremiah, and that your team works with. Because honestly, I've had tons of women who come to me who are under the notion that they need to essentially deprive their body of calories to drive body composition progress. So those these are the girls that would train fasted or do boot camp classes or excess cardio. And then you know, a lot of them would, you know, I'm asking them about like their, their workout window, what they're eating and all those kind of things. And really like the, the glaring, um, I guess, commonality between a lot of them was they were trying to go as long as possible around training without eating. They thought they'd burn more fat if they, they skipped and they went and fasted. And then if they neglected or they pushed off as eating as much as they could until they cracked essentially. And then they wondered, you know, they would say those same things, but at the same time, they wondered why they weren't making any of the progress they desired and constantly felt like they were dragging during the training, you know, during training and then during throughout the course of the day. And when I really looked at it, 
they were setting themselves up for failure because not only were they underfueling themselves during and after the workout, but they were also down-regulating their metabolic rate. They were down-regulating their knee. So it was causing stalls and fat loss. So ultimately, I really tried to get people, and especially my female clients, to shift their mindset. We're looking at this as fuel. And look at this as the most beneficial time throughout your day to get in nutrients. You're going to utilize them best. And really, it's nutrient time is another opportunity for us to get in our nutrients that meet our total energy needs for the day. Because if you do think it doesn't matter and you skip that pre and post-workout nutrition, you're going to have a ton of you know, nutrition essentially to make up for the rest of the day where you're going to miss out on them and ultimately not meet that most fundamental principle of nutrition, which is total calorie balance. So this is just another lever that we can pull as coaches as well as trainees to just optimize our nutrient partitioning, um, our nutrition inputs, and everything that we're doing to really get the most benefit and the most bang for your buck. So even if you guys don't want to go into you know, intricacies of intra-workout nutrition, just take those fundamental principles. Let me fuel my training pre-workout with the, the first podcast we do. Make sure that I'm refueling myself post-workout to optimize recovery and actually get the benefits from the muscle, you know, the hypertrophy training that I'm doing. And that in and of itself, that mentality, both the approach that you take the integration of it, as well as shifting your mindset to a mindset of abundance rather than restriction is going to pay off tenfold. So those, those are my biggest suggestions for anyone out there. I love that so much, man. It's so fucking important. Like I could go off on this topic for a long time, but I have so many conversations every single week with new clients where it's that exact scenario. I'm like, Hey, I can tell right away, like our biggest focus needs to be completely shifting this to fueling you pre-workout and actually putting priority on your nutrition so we can recover post-workout. But um, again, that's a topic for a different podcast. Anything you want to plug before I let you go here? Just if you guys have any questions whatsoever, uh, feel free to reach out to me at Brandon DeCruz underscore on Instagram. A lot of these topics, honestly, guys, that Jeremiah and I cover are questions I get from you guys. So when you DM me, when you reach out, when you hit us back with comments about the podcast. Really what we try to do is we try to get together. Jeremiah and I have a great relationship. Um, so we're able to kind of put our brains together, really go over topics that a lot of you guys have interest in and we'll continue to do them as long as you guys want to listen to them. So anything you guys need, feel free to reach out to me. If not, feel free to reach me at my email, which is at uh, Brandon DeCruz or Fitness at gmail.com. I will have that also linked up in the show notes for the listeners. As always, man, I appreciate you. Thank you for being here. And we will talk to y'all soon.